0: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig
1: Roberts. America over the last two generations now, some 50 years experts argue, has slowly and methodically been killing itself. The problem is called obesity. From the days when we ate a healthy and wholesome diet, we have come to live to gorge ourselves at the buffet table. Assuming since everything there technically is edible and tastes so good, it thus should be eaten. We have abandoned healthy eating and embraced a new, more appealing cookbook of chemically and genetically modified foods that last longer, taste better, and thus we ate more food of less quality, filled with empty calories or all the wrong calories, that while may taste good, are actually bad for us and ultimately killing us. Medical experts warn if we don't change our diet and eating pattern soon, America will wind up one big, fat, lazy, useless, physically bankrupt nation. Now let's look at another similarly dangerous pattern of the last two generations. While the first is slowly bringing about our physical destruction, the second, more dangerous than the first, is bringing about our spiritual destruction. The problem is called sin and counterfeit doctrine. From the days when we read the Word, attended biblically sound churches, and embraced true discipleship, we have come to live to gorge ourselves at the buffet table of false teaching. Assuming if it makes us feel good about ourselves, it must be true. We have abandoned sound doctrine and healthy discipleship and embraced a new, more appealing Bible of social gospel, word of faith, emergent church theology. We gorge ourselves on false teaching filled with empty promises and all the wrong doctrine. That, while may make us feel good, are actually bad for the church and are ultimately spiritually killing us. And everyone who profits from marketing of this false teaching is actually an antichrist who makes out like a bandit selling nonsense and manipulated doctrine, all designed to give us an easy way out of God's design for salvation and sanctification. And the cycle of false teaching, an unhealthy church begs for a reawakening once again. And sound biblical experts warn, if we don't change our theology and belief patterns soon, the church in America will wind up as one inept, lazy, useless, spiritually bankrupt institution. Joining me now in studio is author and theologian James Darnell. 57% of evangelical church attendees say they believe many religions can lead to eternal life. Of course, that is directly at odds with the mandate in John fourteen six. that Christ says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. Sure. No one comes to God but through me." Mm-hmm. Your book, "Saving the Saved," addresses what's happening in America's churches today. How do you respond to this shocking biblical disconnect?
2: Well, first of all, thank you for having me on, and I really enjoy our conversations together. But the disconnect that you're talking about is is a is is an effort. ...on the church, and especially church leadership, and by that I'm talking about professional clergy and whatever, that have come to the place to believe that that they have an answer, that they have a, a way to approach the issues and the concerns that people are having today. And that means uh, they're going to have to share an idea... That is different. That's a little fresher. Uh, that comes at them uh, with a little bit of radicalness. Uh, it's uh, it's a, it's a way of looking at the gospel and the words and the teachings of the scripture in a way that says to people, you know what? Uh, maybe we have something to offer here. May, maybe maybe what God expects us to do is take the bull by the horns here and. Um, Work with this culture. Find a way to make things um, exciting for people to uh, become involved in the life of the church. M- maybe we need to make some compromise. Uh, nothing that would really hurt us doctrinally, but, uh, and we don't know where that may go, but, but well, let's start out with something a little bit different. So what they end up doing, and that's what the book talks about, is that they end up in this battle of supremacy that has gone on for centuries between man's kingdom and what he believes is good and God's kingdom that is already there and already underway and already have been planned and moving forward. And now what we have is we have this conflict between these two kingdoms, uh, man's kingdom and God's kingdom, and Saving the Save, what it does in four chapters at the very beginning, uh, the the book is divided into uh, to three parts, and that very first part addresses this entire issue. What it says is basically this: in four chapters, it outlines for people a way to understand what's happening to the church in America, and it under and we understand it from the perspective of a secular type of uh, of thinking. Uh, that's going on that says, look, um, we have to, we have to become involved with the secular community, with the seekers, with the on church folks. We have to bring them into our church. And you and I have had a show before, uh, talking about these very issues with numbers as to what's happening across the country and people leaving the church. And, and what this has resulted in is the agenda of the church is now being, uh, set and the mission of the church is now being described based on people who are not necessarily committed to Christ. There are two big buzzwords we hear these days.
1: We hear much about tolerance. We hear a lot about inclusiveness. And yet, it seems to be at odds. You spoke about this this sense of being at odds with two major opposing worldviews, or two kingdoms. God's kingdom with a capital K, and man's kingdom with a small k. At odds here, too, must be on one hand tolerance and inclusiveness and on the other extreme, as we see outlined in Scripture, very exclusiveness within the claims of Christ and Christianity. I mean, for example, the individual that approaches this from a very tolerant standpoint, bearing out this 57% of evangelical Christians who say, well, if God is really a loving God, then surely he will allow everybody who wants to seek him to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And yet, Christ is very exclusive in saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Narrow is the gate. So we really see at odds here, on one hand, inclusiveness and tolerance, Mm -hmm. and the other, the exclusiveness that is at the core of God's plan for salvation.
2: Absolutely. And it is exclusive. And the reason it's exclusive is because you have to make a choice as to how you're going to approach Ministry. You cannot approach ministry with a Bible on the back burner. If you decide to do that, what that does is exactly what it describes in the second part of this book, which is it describes the subtle strategic persecution that is happening to Christians in this country who are unaware of what you just said and they're they're not clear about what has really happened and, and how we're becoming a a godless nation when we have all these churches on every street corner and 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 people are talking constantly But here we have a public school system that has been infiltrated with these secular worldviews. We have the family that's being topsy-turvy, upside down, because uh, uh, everybody's concerned about what you can say and what you can't say to a child and how you bring them up. We have the problems with science. Here's a perfect example. Uh, We have a, a Christian community of scientists now that feel that they need to rewrite the first two chapters of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2 because they need to Include because they're convinced that, that God just didn't happen to mention evolution, but he used it. In in putting together the universe, and so they're going to help him out a little bit and put in there this inclusive idea that man has designed and a theory that man has developed, and they're going to make this part of the Holy Word of God. Does this become sort of a theological Trojan horse? And I ask that question because
1: there is a sense that if we stay to the exclusivity of the Scripture in terms of the origin of man... God's plan for salvation. There's that sense that, well, gee, when we preach it in such a narrow fashion, church attendance is cut in half. But if we take more of an inclusive approach to all of this, we allow then larger people to be exposed to the message because it's more user friendly. It would almost appear as if it's a bit of a theological Trojan horse and that what we're really experiencing here is we've seen this paradigm shift with it. As you point out, many institutions be it the church itself, public education, uh, the adoption of the church, of the culture, so that now the culture influences the church and as opposed to vice versa, Mm -hmm. that a lot of this through
2: seduction and subterfuge has come about. Absolutely. You hit the nail right in the head. That's exactly what's going on. And what has happened is pastors somehow feel that if they don't get on this bandwagon, they're going to be left out or they're going to be behind. And so they feel it's important that they learn how to do something new and fresh and bring something different to the church. Are we focused
1: more on numerical results then as opposed to spiritual results? Because if the pastor down the street is reporting that their church attendance Sunday morning has doubled since they've become an emergent church, since they've become more Uh seeker-sensitive, if that's the yardstick, is this part of the problem of what pastors are looking at? Absolutely.
2: It's a major part of the yardstick. And matter of fact, if you go to the conference that the pastors are going to to learn how to do leadership with their church— They're told that this is the only yardstick, that basically to reach this new culture, this secularized culture, what you have to do is be inclusive. And not only that, but you have to be, in a sense, politically correct about some things and you have to allow them to be who they need to be so they feel comfortable in the presence of God. James Darnell with us today
1: in studio. Look at Saving the Saved, how the church's greatest omission led to a post-Christian America. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now
0: back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Welcome back to Lifeline. Craig Roberts along with James Darnell. We're talking about a new book called Saving the Saved, how the church's greatest omission led to a post-Christian America. You made a reference to leadership just before the break. And I'm curious, with all this focus that we see, and we've got many of these mega church conferences that take place, people are concerned about how can they become more effective, they want to be purpose-driven, they want to be seeker-sensitive things of this sort. But it would seem that we're skipping over one important mandate, and that is that I see nowhere in Scripture where Christ says, go out and develop leaders. He does say to make disciples. Are we getting the cart before the horse here? Are we building a house of cards on a foundation that is non-existent because you have a church that is focused on leadership and how to become more effective at attracting the unchurched when Christ at the core is calling us to build disciples
2: and reach the lost? Shepherding the flock is no longer important. What's important is how many people are getting hold of the message, and are we expressing the new definition of extended love to everybody, no matter who they are, what they have done, what they are doing? are
1: what they might do in the future. I'd extrapolate on that because it would seem to me if you're no longer shepherding the flock, that means the flock is free to go and eat at any pasture they wish, whether or not the grass is healthy for them
2: or poisonous. Absolutely. And what we have here now in the church is an apostasy of the pastorate. Uh, it's, it, it has come out of this, this secular notion of a pluralistic worldview that seems to be the global way of thinking. And we have set aside the Judeo-Christian worldview. And the Judeo-Christian worldview no longer is considered the foundation upon which Christ has built his church. It's now built upon the idea of unity. The best man has to bring to the table. And what is it that we know about God? And here's the interesting thing. God is not against knowledge. He wants us to see knowledge. There's plenty of things in Proverbs and everything else that tells us about the importance of knowledge. But with that comes wisdom. And what we're doing now is we're teaching the church somehow that what they can do if they can just um, experience God in their own way that the knowledge isn't quite as important. So therefore, you know, we, t- we take the authority of the Scriptures and we kind of set that in the back burner. And we say, let's kind of experience God together. So what we do now is, we, at the Leadership Conference, we come home with these ideas. Not only do I have a dream, not only do I think we should wonder and be into nature, but I also believe that we should use our imagination in interpreting the Scriptures. Just think what it would be like. Can you imagine what it would be like for you if if you designed the scriptures, if you taught the scriptures, if you learned the scriptures the way it would be helpful to you and ha- therefore you could you could be live any lifestyle you want to live and still call yourself a christian and This is exactly what 's happening so we 're repackaging the scripture to make it more palatable.
1: We repackage the truth to make it more user-friendly. And yet, isn't that Unitarian approach essentially denying the truth of the Scripture? Because suddenly now, with the Unitarian approach, that means that, well, we can all be right. And yes, there are many roads to heaven. And after all, wouldn't a loving God want to embrace anybody who is simply sincere about their approach? And if you talk about the exclusivity of the claims of Christ... Isn't that intolerant? Doesn't that become suddenly uh, uh, language that is um, almost warlike to somebody else who doesn't believe the way we believe, doesn't interpret Scripture the way we interpret Scripture?
2: Mm-hmm. And what it does is also it causes great division among the church and great confusion among the people who call themselves Christians and attend churches. The the, the concern that I have here, and this is what. Uh, Saving the save is all about. People ought to get this book and, and read these details because I've, I've gone to great length as a labor of love to try to lay this out in a logical way so that people can understand that what's happening here is they have everything they need. God has given them Everything, when they have come to Christ, not only are they saved, not only do they have eternal life, not only uh, will they be raised and, uh, from the dead, and, and all those wonderful things. But along with that is this whole process of sanctification and the Holy Spirit living in their life. And it's not about telling your story. It's not about saying, oh, well, this happened to me uh, 15 years ago, and, 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 you know, I've come through these problems and these problems and these problems. Here's when your story starts. When you're redeemed. That's when the story starts. And so, when you're redeemed, Christ has placed within you. Listen to Paul. He says, this is in 2 Corinthians, he he, he talks about, Now it is God who makes us who we are and stands firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit. For what reason? To guarantee the outcome. To guarantee what's going to come. Now, the interesting thing about that is what is it that's in there that we are not shepherding, that we are not getting out, that we are not discipling? And the church refuses to talk about that. And here's what's in there what's in there is what has happened to your heart, your regeneration, how you've received through the imputed love of Christ his righteousness how you have new character in your life, and what that character and blessing means taught by Jesus. How you become holy, how you practice holiness in your daily life, how you practice your communication now with your neighbor, how you love your neighbor, the transformation of your mind, and all the gifts that God has given you. These are all lying subtle inside Uh, and and uh, subservient to the love that we want to have for Christ. And, And they're no longer brought to the forefront because man has a better idea. So
1: is there a fundamental theological paradigm shift here where on one side we have the business of making disciples, preaching Christ crucified, his shed blood for the remission of sin, and on the other side we have the marketing of Christianity, which, well, when you start to talk about this sin and offending God and God requiring shed blood for the remission of sin, Yeah, that's kind of inconvenient from a marketing standpoint. That really doesn't go with the approach that's dictated by Madison Avenue. So mm-hmm. let's clean a lot of that stuff up and instead let's focus on how God can make you healthy and wealthy mm-hmm. or how you can feel better about yourself and be the popular person on the block because of the power of positive thinking.
2: Absolutely. And that's what's going on. You, you've hit it again on head. That's exactly where the church is going the church has decided that if we can experience and imagine the scripture if you can tell your story and you can sit in small groups and share with psychological and sociological principles how you feel and what you're experiencing in your religious life and in your spiritual growth that that's all you need to be able to move forward in your faith as a christian And what we've done is we've left Christ out of that formula, and we've uh, left the Scriptures and what the Scriptures have taught out of that formula. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The truth now is what you believe. What you feel is best for you, that has become the new truth. And as far as, as life is concerned... Uh, yes, we accept eternal life, but from that point forward, God, sense, God God believes that we need to take a sense of responsibility ourselves. So now what we do is we take over our spiritual growth and we say, <clears throat> let's go help people. let's let's get back in the action uh, business of the gospel. Let's try to find ways to love our neighbor. Let's do that. There's nothing wrong with those things. It's just it's out of the context in the way Christ said we should do it. And so we've decided that the Scriptures are no longer the authority. And when you do that, anything goes, including uh, philosophies and, and new theologies and, and ideas. And uh, like I said in the conferences, that right now this is the time of year when the co- all the conferences are being advertised. And young men from megachurches are going across the country and talking to pastors and congregations and things and telling them all about leadership, imagination how to wonder, how to think about uh, things differently so that you can make your contribution to the kingdom of God when in, in reality they're doing exactly what you said. They're going down the broad path. And they're not going to be able to end up where they think they're going to end up. And a lot of people are going to be misled. And a lot of people are not going to get the solid foundation that they need to have. And the pastors, for all intents and purposes, have going out. Uh, gone out of the shepherding business, the discipling business. They're now, uh, these these conferences that they go to and the activities and the the money that the church is laying out uh, for programs and all the rest of it, this is costing churches a fortune. And not only that, (laughs) but the end result is not going to be any different than was the end result with the uh, former church movement by certain pastors who, who went after the unchurched and whatever. We find now that those churches are closed, are sold, and the pastors are gone, and all the rest of it. This is just another version of that same effort and that same desire to grow the church. It's all about numbers. And what do we have here? And if we have happy people who are giving their tithe and are doing, we don't need to go deeper. Who needs to have a deeper spiritual relationship with Christ? Uh, you got the church. You have us. We have each other. Why do we need anything else? That's the thinking. James Darnell with us in studio. A look at
1: Saving the Saved, how the church's greatest omission led to a post-Christian America. Information, by the way, about the book on the web at savingthesaved.com. That's savingthesaved.com. A brief timeout back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues.
0: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig
1: Roberts. Welcome back to The Conversation. James Darnell today in studio with us. A look at Saving the Saved, how the church's greatest omission led to a post-Christian America. More information, by the way, on the book at SavingTheSaved.com. That's SavingTheSaved.com. We were talking about this paradigm shift that we've seen take place. In the church today, I'm curious as we sort of take the, the yardstick to the moral health of America today, as we take the patient's temperature, so to speak, we, we see that we're in this moral quagmire at, at, at many levels. Um, we are victims of moral uh, relativism. Is this the product of the slippery slope of theological relativism that has said it's not so much about preaching the exclusive truth of the claims of Christ, but rather the inclusive approach? Because after all, we want people to feel good about themselves because if they don't feel good about themselves, Mm -hmm. they won't show up to church on Sunday.
2: Mm -hmm. Yes, you're right. And I I also think that it has a... um, uh, There's inside that kind of a secret... Uh, Type of uh, movement to eliminate words like sin and um, uh, words like rebellion and disobedience and uh, what we would call the old orthodox kind of way of looking at our faith. Yeah, when's the last time a preacher from the pulpit used a term like atonement? There you go, or propitiation. That's right. These these words are being uh, set aside, and uh, interestingly enough, not being replaced. The, the words now are love, 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 forgive, forgive, and forgive, and uh, be inclusive, and, and, and love your neighbor as yourself. So uh, things like, uh, the, the, for example, the, the, the Ten Commandments um, are not even looked at anymore. Uh, and really, half of those commandments you know, are about the love that Jesus uh, prescribed for us, and the other half are, are about the love that God has for us. And yet, at the same time, when Jesus answered that question for the Pharisees, what, 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 they, he, he, he said to them, look, the commandments are all wrapped up in just two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. What that was was a combination of all ten of the commandments that Moses uh, had written down from God, and he brought that all together. the Pharisees didn 't catch it they weren't, they, they, they didn 't quite understand what he was trying to say. but the interesting thing is as he went on to teach his disciples and as he became the head of our church today, and Paul began to unwrap some of jesus 's teachings, what we find out is is that it 's important that a person knows what they 're repenting from where they're coming from, why they are sinful, why we were created the way we were created, and what happened to us at the very beginning. And as they follow that through the Scripture, they see that they, all the Scripture from Genesis 1, the whole way through to Revelation, is all about Christ. It's all about Him, His plan of repentance and it's about the, the God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together to bring us back into a relationship with Him. And what the church has decided to do today is to say, Look, if you want to be a Christian, fine. Some churches even j- just pray this prayer right after me. And you say the little prayer, Congratulations, you're a champion, you're in. And then they move forward with their agenda, their values their plan, their idea, in order for us to make the contribution. And I can't overestimate that. The whole issue here is is what is it that we have to offer? And when we do that, what we do is we say, it's not about Jesus anymore. He's done what he's going to do. It's about us. And what we can offer and what we can do. That's why you see some of the major pastors uh, that are out there today uh, swallowing the whole idea of universalism and some of the other concepts that are going on because they, they actually believe that they can make a contribution that could perhaps even change God's mind. But if our central focus is not on
1: man's sinful fallen condition, having offended a holy righteous God Mm -hmm. and the need for shed blood for remission of sin for reconciliation unto God that leads to relationship, if that fails to be the central focus, then doesn't this become much like simply performance-based religion, its behavior modification, and in which case, what sets us apart from any other cult out there that does the same thing? There are plenty of cults out there that teach, hey, don't beat your wife, it's not good to drink and smoke, take get her better care of your bodies, pay your taxes on time, I mean, that's all performance-based.
2: Mm-hmm. But what it does is It's performance-based, and it is behavior modification. And um, it's a way of, I don't know how to say it other than to say it's a way of bringing man to a level where he feels being made in the image of God, he now has the right to control his life and the way things get done. So it's no longer
1: about servitude to the Lord, but rather the roles are flipped. Suddenly now God becomes a a cosmic bellhop who is at our disposal to meet our every whim, Mm -hmm. make sure that we are fully satisfied in life so that if we're not as healthy as we want to be, wealthy as we want to be, we just go and say, hey God, (laughs) what's the deal here? Aren't I supposed to be abundantly blessed? One major preacher, I won't name any names, but he's based in Houston, Texas, (laughs) announced recently from the pulpit that the core purpose of Christ coming was to give us abundant life.
2: Well, there you go. That's but a that per- isn't what the Bible teaches. No, but that's a perfect example of where man makes his contribution. He is a given us abundant life. We, we, what Jesus tries to teach his disciples, and then his disciples. Uh, passed on not only to the jews but also paul being a jew passed on to the gentiles was the whole idea of character and that's where that comes from it comes from jesus's teaching on character and what jesus said is yes there's a blessing that goes with a character but what we have done is we've decided not to take the biblical interpretation of what that really is what we've decided to do was redefine it so if you feel good if you are experiencing a, a, a good religious moment, if you are worshiping and you are happy, if you are uh, financially blessed and whatever, then you're doing things right. If you're not within that abundant living, which is not what that means at all in Scripture, but if you're not within that abundant living, then what you've done is is uh, you need to give more. You need to uh, perhaps do more good deeds. You need to... um uh, fellowship more in a way that will help you to grow up and mature as a Christian and they would say function in the kingdom of God more uh, by your tithes and by your offerings and by your works. Well, what's the difference between that then and uh, the approach of, of creating an industry as opposed to building God's kingdom? Yeah, that's exactly what they've done. They've built a church industry and that's what these, these leadership conferences that pastors are going to today, the, the, the majority of them are all about you becoming a leader that can lead your flock to a new level, a higher level of responsibility and accountability for who you are. And they never talk about who you are in Christ. It's who you are and what you have to offer each other and what you have to offer God. How you see yourself, how others see you, as opposed to how God sees you. Absolutely. It has nothing to do with how God sees. It's, it's almost like it's passe. You know, Jesus went to the cross. He died for your sins. Wasn't that wonderful? You know, he gave you eternal life. That's even nicer. But now culture has changed. Uh, um, we're more sophisticated now. Uh, science is our, our, uh, is our God. And what we need to do now is we need to understand how we can make our contribution. How we can do it without God. That's why we we spend a lot of time at the very beginning of Saving the Saved uh, talking about what are the laws and the beliefs of a secular society that knows that the way they can get done what they want done is to compromise the church, and uh, second of all, uh, knows that if they take the church and get it compromised, they can then have the end result, which is a a godless nation. And that godless nation and a compromised church allows uh, a new uh, way of governing, uh, not only globally, but in America, but also in a person's personal life. The thing we're missing here is, and and that they're missing, is this is not a a collective salvation approach. Uh, God is looking at us individually. And each person has to be accountable to God for who they are and what their life, how they've lived their life and what their life is all about. And, and what the church is doing now is making it more of a collective salvation. So that, you know, if we're doing a lot of good things together, and if we're thinking the right things, and if we're imagining what could happen. Uh, a lot of books out today. Imagine this. Imagine that. Imagine heaven. Imagine hell. I mean, you know, what's that all about? And what that's about is helping people to let loose of the scriptural understanding of things and help them to use who they are to try to determine what they want to experience of a relationship with their God. So the Bible
1: then goes from having been foundational to the theological underpinnings of the church, mm-hmm. to a companion reference guide. It's it's a side manual. It's uh, yeah. some interesting notes that we can quote from. That perhaps has a nice poetic flow to it. Let's get up and recite a passage or two out of the Book of Psalms that makes us all feel good. Yes, but let's not dare use that yeah. as the foundational underpinning yeah. of
2: our faith. And the Bible is no longer uh, in in many uh, thinking of many pastors and churches across America, which Barna has made very clear in his studies that over. 51% of them uh, do not hold a, a biblical worldview. 57% of evangelicals believe that there are many ways to get to heaven. So. Absolutely. So there you go. That gives you an idea of what's happening and how powerful it is and how it's really affecting what's going on in the life of a, a Christian today. There's no wonder why people out there are confused. It's no wonder why they go to their church and when you, we tell them to be salt and light, they're saying, oh, well, my pastor wouldn't have that. Uh, we're, we're, we're in the middle of a dream and putting together our new core values and, and uh, uh, doing our leadership like they do at, uh, at um, you know, uh, one of the major companies, Chevron or something. That, that's what the church is all about. It is not. It's, it's become a community center. To be able to deal with issues in the local community, but to deal with them with the very best knowledge that man has to offer, and to put that little tag on you that says Christian. And when that tag Christian is there, even though they're being persecuted for it now, they believe that over a period of time that will eventually melt away because the new definition of what a Christian is will not include an infallible, inerrant scripture. It will not include... Um, a savior that has brought us from sin to salvation it will not include any kind of living style or sanctified life or holiness or whatever we will be moral in terms of what morality is plurality and morality is accepted within our society James darnell a look at saving the saved how the church's greatest omission led to a
1: post-christian america a book available on the web and more information at savingthesaved.com that's savingthesaved.com and now back to lifeline with Craig Roberts Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Joining me today in studio is Pamela Prime, author of When the Moon is Dark, We Can See the Stars. So Pamela, as we were talking just before the break, there is a longing of God's creation for Him. And really, there's also... God who longs for us. And, of course, the deeper we go in that longing, the deeper he draws us in. Um, Yes. There's so much we see in Scripture about surrendering.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, Certainly, Christ ultimately modeled that. My goodness, the the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yes. And knowing the pain that he knew he would be facing, and yet to be able to have the stamina to say, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Yes. Even in that moment. Yes. Yes. Christ demonstrated to us what it means to fully surrender to God and then watch as we see that story unfold from Gethsemane to then Golgotha and eventually on that hill hung on the tree and then of course the good news of the resurrection on the third day we see how God was there through all of that, even at the moment when he utters, God, why have you forsaken me? Mm -hmm. We we fully understand that, in fact, God had not forsaken him at any point. And maybe that's the big important message that, that readers can extrapolate from your book, that even though we go through these experiences, as you recount the story of losing Maggie, Sean to suicide at the age of 16, your marriage after 23 years... That God is still with us, even though sometimes it doesn't always feel like that. Yes. He hasn't forsaken us. And if we will reach out to Him, He will reach back to us, won't He?
3: Well... I think God is reaching out to us before we reach out to God. Yeah, that's you know, right. I think we're already <laughs> yeah, yeah. in God's this is lap. This very true, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, God is waiting for us. Wow. Was <laughs> no, God
1: was never lost. God was never
3: lost. I remember just getting so so upset and so sad one day because we had moved and I was in a place that I had never lived before and. A neighborhood that was very foreign to me. We moved from the
1: from the East Coast. Was this the Tennessee experience? Yeah, to yeah. Tennessee, mm-hmm. and
3: I—that's where I really was lonely and isolated and and really depressed. Uh, yeah, from I got the a, East
1: Coast or, or Walnut Creek on the other end, and then Tennessee. That's a culture right? Shock, isn't and it? yeah,
3: and so I, I was like a fish out of water, really. And I remember just plunking myself down in this chair and and just raising my eyes and and my hands and saying. God, where are you? And I heard back. I thought you'd never ask.
1: <laughs> you know, I was there so, all the time. Yeah, mm-hmm.
3: exactly. And that was that was another turning point. It was you know these these moments where I realized I would realize that I had this magnificent relationship, this magnificent love relationship, and uh, you know God was always poking at me and, and trying to wake me up to that.
1: Those peaks on the, uh, the Richter scale, like exactly. an earthquake, you know, they don't happen all the time. Right. But those earthquakes that sometimes can uh, jostle us, yes, they can be upsetting, like some of the events in life can be upsetting. Yeah. And yet they can also be those, those shocking moments that will awaken a sense of the spiritual in us. That's right. Drive us back towards scripture, back toward... The foot of the cross. Mm -hmm. Because let's face it, when life is going well, what do you need God for? But it's in those moments when life is shaking us like an earthquake that we suddenly now can open our eyes and, and realize that it's more about than just the pain and the loss and the grieving and the trying to figure it out. It's about allowing God to love us in and through those negative experiences, the terrible things that most of the world works very hard to try to avoid or anesthetize the pain of. And experience God in the pain. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Paul talked about knowing Christ in the power of the resurrection. And people like to put the period right there. Boom. I like that. Boy, the resurrection. Look at that. Raised from the dead. Can't beat that. Right. But he doesn't end there. He goes on to say, and in the fellowship of his sufferings. And we, we like that power of the resurrection part, but getting to know Christ in the fellowship of his sufferings and realizing, as you mentioned earlier, that. He knows. He can relate. He knows what we're going through. Exactly. And in and through that, then we can find that sense of, of peace and comfort that surpasses all understanding. Yes. Yeah. And that certainly has been your experience, hasn't it? It
3: really has been my experience. And that's really why I wrote the book, because I feel very blessed. I I find now, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but majority of my prayer is a prayer of gratitude mm-hmm. because of my life. I just feel deeply blessed i have a beautiful marriage and live in a beautiful part of the world and i don't know god is just blessing me (laughs)
1: Let's talk about briefly the beautiful part of the world that you live in, down in in Twainheart. You and your husband um, operate just a a wonderful location there. You've had a retreat center for many, many years that I understand is now available. And boy, a family looking for a great place to get away to, or maybe um, even a religious organization that says, hey, we'd like to just get a a, a small, neat little retreat center in the middle of the spectacular uh, California Redwoods. You're about an hour north of Yosemite so listeners that know the Twain Heart area immediately know we're talking about a little slice of heaven here on this side um, you've got a beautiful piece of property there tell us a bit I about did.
3: it well it's uh, it's five acres and um, when Dave and I moved there we started to recreate it it had fallen into great disrepair so we rebuilt the house. Uh, Completely, really. I think there was one stick left by the time (laughs) the contractor got in and started ripping things out. Uh, And so we built a beautiful home. But then we built a tree house that's 35 feet above the ground. And uh, that was all architecturally designed and built by by a man from Maine who we brought to help us build this. And the community built it on the ground. And we lifted it up with a crane. Uh, We've had a lot of fun on the property. The property has a lake that's all spring fed, and it has a stream that goes through it. And then we have another guest house that's on the lake, that it floats on the lake. It has a float, and uh, these buildings are yurts. We have a writer's studio, and we also have another yurt that was really our chapel. And um, we did healing circles every month. And you've done a lot of writing
1: there on the property, I have.
3: I moved there to write, and so that's where I wrote
1: the book. So really, is is the kind of environment that can allow you to get away from the madness of, of all the, the busyness of the big city, so yes. to speak, and and you know what better place if you're looking to reconnect with God or go deeper with God than yes. to get out there in His creation, right? Where you suddenly realize that sparrows cast shadows when the sun is in the right direction, um, and that there's other noise than the sound of passing fire engines and helicopters and the airport nearby, mm-hmm. and really be able to kind of just bask in the glory of that creation.
3: Yes, it's beautiful. It's very peaceful. People say when they come on retreat, uh, we have three guest houses for retreats. They say, uh, this place is magical. Or they say, it's so peaceful. And we've had... I think that the place has just grown in terms of its sense. You know, when you go in a church, you feel really a beautiful energy. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because people pray there. And many, many people have come to the property and, and prayed and meditated and done retreats. So you feel that energy on the property, aside from the fact that the trees and the water are exquisite energetically, and the birds and all the little animals that live there.
1: And as beautiful as a, a chapel can be, it's still made by the hands of man. And yet you're you're in a chapel there that is literally created. By the very hand of God Himself. Exactly. You can't really compete with that can No, you? you can't. Folks want to get more information, um, I'll send you to the website, twobearsdancing.org. That's twobearsdancing.org. And I want to thank Pamela Prime for dropping by and sharing today. It's been great to visit with you. Thank you, Craig. More information again on the web, two twobearsdancing.org. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig. Roberts. Till next time round, remember just don't keep the faith, get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long.
0: Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.